Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and rhyming demon, Elisa Quitney. And I'm story expert looking for her magic ruby, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about A Hope in Hell, episode four from Netflix's The Sandman, season one. A Hope in Hell aired on August 5, 2022, and was written by Neil Gaiman, David S. Goyer, and staff writer Vanessa Benton, with teleplay by Austin Guzman, and directed by Jamie Childs. What power would hell have if those here imprisoned were not able to dream of heaven? Time to wake up. In A Hope in Hell, the Sandman and Matthew the Raven travel to hell in search of dreams missing helm his crown, in effect. Traveling into a rival monarch's domain without an invitation is always a bit dicey, but particularly so when you're not at full strength, and Dream is missing his ruby as well as his helm. Squatterbloat, one of the rhyming demons, leads Dream on the scenic route to Lucifer Morningstar, taking Dream past the cell to which he has consigned Nada, a former lover, for the past 10,000 years. Once a queen in Africa, Nada sees Dream, or Kaikul as she knew him, as a very young African king. Kaikul admits he still loves Nada, but adds that he has not forgiven her. Despite this, she tells him she will never give up hope. Meanwhile, on our plane of existence near Buffalo, New York, John D. is nearly run over and then picked up by a good Samaritan, Rosemary, a middle-aged woman with two daughters and a sweet Rottweiler. As Rosemary drives, she begins to realize that her passenger is not just a sweet and slightly baffled white man down on his luck. Like the Sandman, Dee is not dressed in all the accoutrements of power. And like the Dream Lord, he lacks the ruby in which much of his power is concentrated. But Dee is still dangerous, a self-confessed murderer who believes that all people lie because they are essentially selfish. Or afraid, counters Rosemary. Frightened herself, Rosemary pretends to need gas and softly asks the attendant, doodling skulls, to call 911. Frightened herself, Rosemary pretends to need gas and softly asks the attendant, doodling skulls, to call 911. But when the man tries to shoot John, the amulet of protection destroys him. Instead, in a splatter of blood we see from outside the window. Back in hell, Dream and Matthew arrive at Lucifer's palace and meet the fallen angel, who treats Dream to a generous helping of arch mockery, thinly disguised as concern. Do you know which demon has your helm? No. Then we will have to summon all of them. Faced with the countless hordes of demon kind, Dream appears to give up, and Lucifer reminds him that tools are the subtlest of traps. But Dream has not lost all his tools, and he uses the Dream Sand to point him to the correct demon, Corinson, who refuses to return his ill-got gains. Since the only way to get his helm back is to challenge the demon, Dream risks an eternity as a slave of the rhyming demon, only to find himself forced to fight Lucifer instead of Corinson. The battle takes the form of what Corinson terms the oldest game, transformation spells. It's a close match. Lucifer becomes a wolf and Dream a hunter. Lucifer a bacterium and Dream a world. But when Lucifer becomes the darkness at the end of everything, all looks lost until a pep talk from the raven 
seems to give Dream one last burst of inspiration. Or perhaps it was a subconscious memory of his ex-lover's words. In any case, Dream becomes Hope and wins the contest and the helm, but also wins Lucifer's displeasure. Dream uses the helm to locate the ruby and the sand to take him to the storage facility where John has left it. The altered gem knocks the Sandman out as well as his raven, leaving the road clear for John D. The slippered, soft-spoken fiend takes the ruby and finds Rosemary still in her car, waiting for him. You're a good person, he says, reaching into his coat. Unfortunately, good people don't last long in this world. Expecting to be killed, Rosemary is gifted instead with the amulet of protection that John D. no longer needs. He has his ruby, and he's going to save the world. Right, Elisa, so here we are, a hope in hell, and this season is revving up. Things are happening. Uh, What did you think about this episode? Oh, gosh, wow. I mean, I felt even more strongly in this episode than in the original issue how much there are two themes, the theme of hope and fear. And we go back and forth in this episode between the fraught intimacy of two strangers in a car at night and the equally tense dance of protocol between the two seasoned diplomats, Dream and Lucifer. This is also an episode where I felt there was a really fundamental change from the comics, which changes the tone from horror, where good people can suffer and die alongside evil, into something that's more dark fantasy. And yet there is still a little something sinister about the aftertaste of this episode, which is, you know, just as it should be. What what did you feel? Yeah, um, I agree with everything that you said. I think that tonally we are riding a line, I mean, really well, but it is shifting around, you know, and it's it's kind of neat to see that and to be in that space because when you're not sure exactly what story you're in, you don't know what's going to happen and that definitely raises the tension, you know? Um, but there's so much in this episode that I love. Um, I absolutely love, I mean, this of course is something that was made specifically to delight me, is that the big fight is a story fight. Like, I have done... A a lot. I've done a lot of podcasting about like the Marvel movies and always the big action scenes, which tend to bore me. And when people are punching each other in the face, it is just not something that interests me. But here we have them fighting with the most powerful force on Earth, which is story. And I absolutely love that. I love, of course, as I said, when we talked about this in the comic book review, uh, I love that hope is the most unkillable thing in the universe. That was really nice. Um, I love Matthew as a badass raven. Um, That is adorable. Um, I think the design of hell is beautiful in its own like dark and twisty uh, way. Um, And that Morpheus, here we we are trying to like I love that he is in pursuit of his goal he is escalating other areas like here he is yes he got his helm but he pissed off someone who he had just said was the most powerful being in existence um, as if he wasn't in enough trouble as it is so I I think that there's a lot of stuff going on here um, that is really fun and really interesting Uh, John D and Rosemary meanwhile you know kind of contrasted with this story um, you know we have John and Morpheus both in pursuit 
of the things that they need. Um, and, and John, of course, is terrifying and yet bonding with Rosemary. You know, I'm, I'm so scared for her. It's an incredibly dark, you know, it's a dark story between Rosemary and John, even though nothing like super bad. I mean, I guess if you're the, yeah, you know, it's, it's really bad if you're the, the guy at the gas station. But aside from that, you know, like nothing bad happens to Rosemary who we're invested in. I mean, aside from the trauma, which we'll also talk about. Um, but it is so terrifying and you're so tense the whole time. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a great episode. Yeah, I found myself also thinking a lot about Rosemary and, um, well, I've got another whole section on this, but did you realize that that's the actress is Sarah Niles who plays the therapist in Ted Lasso? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge Ted Lasso fan. The second I saw her, I was like, Sharon Fieldstone. Like, I absolutely loved her. Yeah. And she's a wonderful actress. I really, really like her. You know, and I, I've got this whole section, so I'm saying this out of order, but it felt to What's me that? like Rosemary and Dee are the middle-aged version. There, so there's something... I've got this whole section, I think, I think I called it the portrait of the immortal as a young man. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to launch into this out of order yeah, because I it yeah. just... Um, it struck me that Okay, so I was watching the previous episode with my son, who's 27, mm-hmm. and I said, how old does Morpheus feel to you? And he said, mm-hmm. about 40. And I thought, wow, to me, he definitely feels 27, maybe 26. So I, mm-hmm. I had a chance to actually see Neil, and I said, you know, how old does Morpheus feel to you now? To me, he's, you know, mid-20s. And Neil said, absolutely mid-20s, Absolutely. And I thought that that makes sense to me. So on the one hand, you get that upstairs, downstairs, the high low um, mm-hmm. of, you know, great upstairs people while little mortal people are just going about their their business on Earth. But there is a wistful, philosophical, um, more resigned, even her terror is a little resigned with Rosemary, mm-hmm. whereas everything feels grander and sharper and at times smugger. There's a lot of mm-hmm. superior smirking when when Lucifer or Morpheus feel they've gotten the upper hand. And mm-hmm. there is there is no smirkiness with the older people. And yeah. and I don't mean I have a pet peeve. Often, I think in romance, people use the word smirk, not understanding what a smirk is. Because I, mm-hmm. okay, and forgive me, people who do this. This is just, I grew up thinking of a smirk as a really unpleasant expression of the face. The smirk mm-hmm. says, you're an idiot and I know much mm-hmm. better than you. And so if 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 a potential romantic partner were to smirk at me, let alone smirk <laughs> at me often, uh, that that yes. would that would be a big turnoff. However, I think mm-hmm. it's appropriate when you've got immortal, powerful, arrogant beings playing their mm-hmm. their Game of Thrones, you know, shenanigans to have some smirking mm-hmm. going on. But anyway, it it felt to me a lot like um a difference in age as well as mm-hmm. in in status. And and oh, and it's kind of Shakespearean, isn't it? That high low business. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, yes, we're definitely going to have so much more to say about John Dee and Rosemary, but let's go ahead and get started talking about um, like the visual elements in this episode. What did you think about how it presented this story visually? Well, I... You know, I, I found myself looking back at the original, uh, which was Sam Keith and Dringenberg, Dringenberg inking at that point, Sam Keith penciling, and then at the later season of Mist's Kelly Jones stuff. I think there's a mixture. What mm-hmm. what you don't get as much, and you know, so Kelly has grotesque, gothic, shadowy stuff going on. Um, Sam Keith and Dringenberg working together did more humorous grotesqueries and mm-hmm. you know in their version of the Corinson in the comic it's Corinson doing the the rap battle um mm-hmm. of of uh, the oldest game you know you've got this woman lying there who's a demon uh, or I, again you know genders are always uh fluid and never more so than with demon kind so i i mm-hmm. think it is a female demon i don't know but there's a bikini and apparent breasts, multiple eyes. And Mm -hmm. she seems to be leered at, if leered is the word, by a little blobby creature that's got (laughs) one eye sticking out. Um, By the way, blobby creature with one eye is just one of my all-time favorite things. Uh, You see it (laughs) often in comics in different iterations. And I, you know, I'm not saying that it would have been appropriate here to have that sort of uh, Star Wars cantina feel to the mm-hmm. to the audience. But I, I definitely felt that this took us more into Kelly Jones territory. Oh, yeah. No, that's really neat that you can see all that. I haven't become familiar enough with the different art styles to like align them with how those art styles have influenced the ways in which the, the visuals of the TV show are imagined. Um, but that's, that's pretty cool. I, I like that. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the helm, right? Because here we are. This whole episode is about the pursuit of this helm, the pursuit of the crown, getting his power back. Yes. Well, the helm... Um is in in the mythology in the comic we hear it's composed of the spine and the skull of a dead god and the mm-hmm. helm also serves as dreams oh god this is when i said chorinson for 30 years now i'm trying to say corinson is it sigil <laughs> sigil um i think it's sigil, sigil. But i'm not really sure i'm gonna say yeah. sigil anyway right. it's uh sigil words that you read far more than you hear uh, mm-hmm. So the sigil is a symbol, but it also holds some form of power. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know everything. The helm does allow him to see where the ruby is located. It's mm-hmm. a crown. It's symbolic, but it's also used in that gallery. Um, it's how mm-hmm. his other siblings can call him. In the comic, Sam Keith and Dringenberg initially drew uh, the mask and it was, uh, I think, kind of a fantasy interpretation of the Wesley Dodd Sandman gas mask Mm -hmm. kelly jones took it even more into an organic vertebrae like quality um with the nose piece and Mm -hmm. uh and i think that that has been duplicated here but okay so this is a little naughty but i have to say this on a much lighter note (laughs) my friend dean retweeted um oliver darkshire who goes by at death by badger and he wrote a tweet that says sandman I must recover my magical sand, which puts people to sleep, and my ruby, which makes dreams real, 
and my gimp mask, which is for personal reasons. <laughs> yes, we shall not kink shame on this podcast, Sandman. You do you. Um, yeah, I, I love that... Um, you know, that kind of very organic kind of feel to the mask. But it's, you know, it's a helm and it's a crown, but it covers his whole face. You know, it is something that gives uh, that gives him mystery and allows him to kind of be hidden behind something. And I think that that's interesting when you're talking about dreams, which are all about symbols, right? You know, dreams are about what things mean, not necessarily what they are, you know? Um, and so when you think, when you look at the helm and it being almost, um, you know, this kind of organic, almost exoskeleton, there's sort of a bug-like sort of oh, feel yes. to it. Nice. You know, yeah. So it has all of that, all of that feel to it uh, as protective armor, you know, as well as as something that that sort of represents how dangerous Dream really is. When when he takes it off, you know, he's this twenty six year old, you know, kind of yes. kind of guy who does seem unassuming, you know. And and it's a reminder of how in inhuman he is. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, um. You know, I had I've been meaning to say something too about the I keep wanting to call it a rap battle, um, mm-hmm. because uh, my friend Jeremy said it's it's like a rap battle, and mm-hmm. uh, and I thought that was that was true. In the comic, we have that very rapid verbal back and forth, and there is a lightness. Mm-hmm. Here, we're getting more drama, more stakes to it. It's it's clear yeah. that that you could you could die playing this particular game. And mm-hmm. um, and I I wanted to say one thing which I I had forgotten which is Puss in Boots has yes. a similar thing going on, and there's a wonderful song um, by Steel Eye Span called Two Magicians, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is about a, a woman being pursued by a, a, a man, and they keep changing shape her to get away from him and him to mm-hmm. continue the pursuit. I guess it's more problematic now than when I. I was aware of when I heard it in the seventies, but it's a great, <laughs> right. A great song. So in the battle though, you really get to see a different dynamic because it's Lucifer doing it. And you have some strong mm-hmm. feelings about Gwendolyn Christie. I do. Like I fell in love with Gwendolyn Christie, like a lot of people, um, as she was playing Brianna Tarth in, in Game of Thrones. Um, and here we see her cast so against expectations. And there's something lovely about that. She does such a wonderful job. Um, she is rocking the royal we, you know, really lovely. Um, and I love that we we open with Dream explaining exactly why Lucifer is the most powerful being in the universe. Um, you know, and I think that it's it's such an interesting thing. And I have some things to say about demon and demonizing, which I think adds to that power. Um, you know, when you have nothing left to lose, right? your power goes up exponentially. Um, but there's so much in in the hell sequence that I just absolutely love. There are rules, protocols to be followed. You know, like I love that that there is this sense, this sense of honor, you know, which of course Dream calls out at the end 
Um, and Lucifer is absolutely offended by the idea that there is honor in hell, not having that, you know, um, the, you know, again, like I've, I've said many, many times story is the most powerful force on earth. And I absolutely stand by that. And here we have a storytelling battle, um, which speaks to my heart in so many ways. Um, and that we have, you know, what Corinzen says, a contest of skill, confidence and transformation, you know, um, and they are actually physically transforming each other. I mean, there is blood, you know, as we open with the with the hunter, you know, shooting Lucifer in the gut. Um, you know, Dream is on the ground about to die before he comes up with the idea of hope, which is the unkillable thing. And Lucifer has nothing uh, to say about that. Um, and and I, again, like in the comic, I absolutely loved that moment. I am hope you know, and the power of hope, what that means. Um, and then, you know, Lucifer, of course, is pissed, like not interested in any of this nonsense. You know, I am not honorable that we are not honorable. Right. Um, but there's this lovely, you know, interaction with them. What powers have dreams in hell? And then, of course, Dream says, well, what power would hell have if people couldn't dream of heaven? And I still like that is such an incredibly powerful exchange. I absolutely love it. And then to say that to Lucifer, who was cast out of heaven, that's a sharp cut. And you see it. You see it. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that the really good actors react. And you can see yeah. it's not just about how they deliver a line and the timing and the intonation. And you just see it register. You see the blow register it, it's mm -hmm. done very well. I had this other thought as you were talking yeah. about Gwendolyn Christie. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if sometimes I want to say things and then I'm worried that it won't come out right. But I'm just going to go for this. I mm -hmm. think I wonder if Tilda Swinton had been cast as Lucifer, you know, this mm -hmm. very uh, slender androgynous woman who has a kind mm -hmm. of David Bowie aspect. Would there have been the same backlash, often when women are cast in androgynous roles, they are really, really slender and sort of breastless. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking mm -hmm. to cast a an imposing woman, a woman who mm -hmm. has um, muscle to her mm -hmm. as an androgynous being is a different choice. And the fact that we see a hint of breast, they're not trying to strap everything down there. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that was subliminally part of the issue because I, I just can't think of, besides Brienne of Tarth, another truly androgynous mm -hmm. female character who wasn't a waif <laughs> in some way. Mm hmm. Well, what I love about this, and I love this in a lot of the casting that this show has done, is that we are creating the space to reimagine the ways in which we have always been told these things need to be done. You know, that this, this is the way that this particular type of character must be represented, etc. You know, um, and I think that uh, I, I'm liking the way that that Sandman is kind of breaking a lot of those expectations and not caring 
Mm. Like, you know, I the people, there's backlash, whatever, you know, hop on the train or stay where you are. You know, like, this is where we're going. This is what's going on. And Sandman is not trucking with any of that stuff. And I really like that. Oh, by the way, I just noticed, I think this was on Twitter or somewhere I noticed because I'm very bad with social media. But I think mm-hmm. there have been a lot of negative Rotten Tomatoes reviews that are because of the casting. And so if our listeners uh, who, you know, are are happy that there is diverse and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and interesting casting, you know, maybe 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 we can gather our. You know, the, the people. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, sorry, I'm stuttering at this, but I, I'm just trying to encourage anyone who has, you know, a good feeling about it. I've never reviewed anything on Rotten Tomatoes. It's always hard to do something for the first mm-hmm. time, but I'm thinking maybe, maybe I need to overcome that and review something. Yeah, absolutely. Endless Army, go out. Uh, go to Rotten Tomatoes and talk about how awesome the, uh, the show is, because it really is. And it's just trying to you know get create a space where you can imagine that people who don't look like all of the you know shows from 80s 90s whatever that there are spaces for different bodies that there are spaces for different kinds of characters that there are you know that we can tell these stories in a wonderful way that that has more variety in the way that these characters are represented. I think that that's amazing. And also the actors are killing it. Let's talk about John D and Rosemary. Let's talk about David Thewlis and Sarah Niles in this unbelievable, you know, like if you take just this part out, it is a one act play, right? You know, just the story with these two. Um, I love this so much in the comics you know, Rosemary was, I think, characterized just a little bit flatter than we have Rosemary here. Uh, John D was, I mean, basically this this disintegrating being rather than like a man. Um, but we have these two kind of bonding. You know, Rosemary is being very kind and taking care of this man who she sees as incredibly vulnerable, then discovers, you know, en route uh, that the Uber she picked up was, uh, you know, kind of like a mass murderer and whatever. Um, all of that is um, is increasingly terrifying. Plus, we've got a dog, right? You know, vulnerability I talk about in stories, really, really huge. Clearly, Rosemary is vulnerable when, you know, we have her realizing that there is a murderer in her backseat. But then we have her dog, right? And dogs are externalized vulnerability, right? We love our dogs. Dogs are so important. I don't care what you do to me. Don't harm Susie right? Is something that she says toward the end. So when she goes into the gas station, because she very cleverly is like, hey, you know, let me see if I can try to rescue myself from this horrible situation that has happened. Um, She goes in and there he is in the car with the dog. And that you can see that conflict. Sarah Niles, by the way, killing this performance. Absolutely wonderful. Um, It's just really great. I also love that we have a bad guy who tells the absolute truth. Like having honor in hell, right? We have a bad guy who has murdered all these people. Is like, yeah, I done murdered a lot of people. You know, like is just 
telling everything. And yet we still have this sense of vulnerability also from John D, you know, talking about his mother, bonding about his mother with Rosemary. Um, you know, my mother lied, did you know, or she's what did he said, do you lie to your children? You know, and she's like, No, my husband was the one who lied. And she is sharing her vulnerability with him, which is a bonding experience, you know. Um the scene in the gas station is terrifying, you know, when we have this attendant who's trying to help her ends up blowing up because he's threatening John D. Um, that is horrifying. And of course, to see Viscera just splatter in the walls again. We do love our Viscera on this show. It's a really but big they, and, and yeah. But mm-hmm. they, I mean, it could have been much gorier. They did give us that yes. little bit of a remove and we know pretty quickly who, mm-hmm. who you know, who it was. I... You know, I I was thinking about all the ways in this works. This works differently because the Rosemary in the comic, spoiler, is a victim, right? You know, John D gets out of her car and she's so relieved. She thinks he's going to go away. And then he shoots her and he shoots her. And uh, and in this, Rosemary chooses to wait for D, which is a really complicated thing it is it is i mean in that moment i was like rosemary hit the gas girl get out of there you know but also there's such a thing like one of the basic trauma responses is a freeze response you know and she doesn't seem to be entirely sure why she's waiting for him when he comes out i mean is she um is she sorry i was suddenly distracted by the storm that appears to Oh, no. outside um do do you think that she is waiting for him because she's frozen is she just in a victim place or is she still such a good samaritan that she still feels compassion or empathy for him i i'm i'm not sure there I don't know that it has to be just one. Mm. I think that Sarah Niles played this with so much complexity, you know, that I think that you could say it's a little bit of column A, it's a little bit of column B, like there's a combination of influences going on there. I, yeah, writing wise, I wouldn't have minded a little, there are other places where I thought, oh, I, you know, this is more explicit. I wasn't sure. I maybe wanted a hint more of why she was waiting. And yet, it mm-hmm. works so well to have her wait. And maybe maybe I've gotten out of the habit of inferring and living with uncertainty in terms of how characters behave. But I, I really mm-hmm. loved it. And I loved his unexpected kindness to her. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, that is, it so complicates the character. I mean, I remember that moment in the comics when he just shoots her dead in the face, right? And I was shocked in that moment, because he had been, you know, like, kind of seemed very kind to her. She had been incredibly kind to him in the comics, and he seemed grateful, you know, and then to just like out of nowhere, shoot her dead in the face. But of course, now, as I was watching this, my expectation was that she was going to get shot dead in the face. And I was like, Sarah Niles, Rosemary, get out of there, you know. And Um, him reaching into the jacket, you know, that moment of good people don't survive much in this world. That was very nicely done. They were messing with us who had written the comics. 
that was specifically made to just make us freak out, oh, right? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Because we knew what had happened in the comics, you know. Um, but it is such a wonderful complication for his character that um, that he's not just out to murder people because it's fun to murder people. Like there's there's stuff going on there and he wasn't interested in harming Rosemary. And then when he hands her his protective amulet that his mother had given him and says, no one will ever harm you again. You don't need to be afraid, right? And earlier in that conversation, she had said when people, you know, behave this way, it's because they're afraid. Yes, it's kind of a Ted Lasso moment. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I guess I guess for the Sandman universe, John D is something of a corrupted Ted Lasso. I think that there's <laughs> definitely a master's thesis in that somewhere. Um but I mean, I you know, I love this moment. He gives her this thing and then I'm fascinated by, you know, what happens to her wandering around with this incredible power in the world. Um, But one of the things too, is that like our expectation is that somebody who has been threatened is going to run. Um, But a lot of our expectations about what happens when people, when they are actively experiencing a trauma, you know, is often not what you would expect. And so there's something about that, especially because I've said it before, I will say it again, I'll say it a million times, Sandman to me is reading as a trauma narrative. Mm -hmm. And so to have a traumatic experience for someone in which they do behave in an unexpected way, which is what often happens in trauma and what what is often used when traumatic situations end up in the legal system to um, to take down, you know, a witness or a, a survivor um, and say, oh, how bad was it? You stayed, you waited for him to come back, mm. you know, like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so considering that, like, I, I, I honestly don't know if this is deliberate or not, um, but there is such a strong sense of trauma narrative going on within Sandman that uh, as a trauma survivor, that was something that I really kind of felt. I felt something about that. I felt like that. Yes, that is. That is what happens. You don't behave the way that they think that you should behave, you know, and they use that to discredit you. But then that's not, you know, that's not how it goes. So I liked that. And the other thing I wanted to talk about in this story is, of course, Nada. Nada, who will play a larger role, you know, does it in the comics as we move forward. Um, But we see her here. um, And I know that I'm going to have to wait for the relationship between Nada and Dream to be resolved. But man, I want her fury laid out on a platter. You know, like I, when he says, it pains me to see you like this. I'm like, with all due respect, fuck you, Morpheus. Like, talk about centering yourself in the middle of somebody else's trauma. This always makes me so furious. And so I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that is resolved, like, throughout the run of both the comics and the uh, and the TV show. Um, but I would just like to say, it is not Nada that needs to be forgiven. Uh, End of my discussion. Obviously. <laughs> and I, I can't yeah. remember if we talked about this in a conversation mm-hmm. or on the air. Yeah. Um, but I mentioned how much I love how young Kaikul looks, the actor playing right. Dream yes. is Kaikul. Mm-hmm. Because there's always, I, I think I've discussed my my whole problem with, I'm 16 and you look 16, mm-hmm. but you're a thousand years old. I mean, think <laughs> about this for a minute. If, if an yeah. actor who is 40, you know, looks mm-hmm. 20, is it okay for him to date a 16 year old? No, no, it's not. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, that 
is obviously Tom Sturridge is not exactly an old man. Um, yes. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I loved the youngness of him. Oh, and I just remembered this other thing I did want to say yeah. overall about this episode. For ages now, all the comics that were made into movies, they got deeper by going darker. So, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the material, Batman material already had darkness, but the movies just doubled down on the darkness and the nihilism. And I love the fact that this, if anything, moved more in the direction of hope. And yeah. Nada gets this line about, I will never give up hope, which means that she may have inadvertently saved Dream because that's maybe it was yeah. it was Matthew's pep talk, but it might have been that comment that she made, which is not in the comic. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's not in the comic. I think there was a clear there's a clear line. Yeah. From and the thing that they didn't do, which I really appreciate, is that moment where you know Dream is on the ground, right? Um, having him flash back to her saying that, like this is something that the you have to if you pick moment. it up, you yeah. if you pick it up, you pick it up, right? Um, but the idea that Nada just saved the world from a place where she's been, you know, um, imprisoned for ten thousand years, also once again, Team Nada so hard, so hard. <laughs> It's it's very true. Now, um, we also haven't yet mentioned the demons and the glorious Mazikeen. I think Mm -hmm. Shelly somewhere has a picture. We went to a Halloween party back in the 90s and I dressed as Mazikeen. And, oh my uh, goodness! I really want to see that. We went into a liquor. And by Shelley, we're talking about Shelley Bond, who was uh, another assistant editor uh, on the Sandman series and has a lot of stuff. We also have a bonus uh, interview with uh, Shelley that should be in the feed by now. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's very cool. So I was dressed as Mazakin. I think that uh, mm-hmm. Shelley was Nula. Uh, and when we went into a a liquor store together, somebody pulled me aside and said, "Are you okay?" Because <laughs> you know I. In whatever clumsy way, I looked like half of my face was a bloody pulp. Right, sure, which is which is very very difficult. <laughs> but yeah, like yeah, the the demons, the design of hell, um, that whole space, I think was was really wonderfully um, designed in a way. Like you know, when when uh, Matthew flies up to like see where they are, and he ends up seeing all of these groaning people that are part of the growing tree, you know, and that suffering is just, yeah. There's a great line in the comic that they don't have in the episode, which is, this is the grove of suicides. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. Sandman says something like, it was just a tiny little grove, and now it's a huge forest. The mm-hmm. Despair has, yeah. has increased hugely in the world since he was away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God. Which is just incredible. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, 
and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish and support us today. All right, everybody, this is the section of the podcast that we call Lucien's Library. This is where we're going to talk about bigger themes. We're going to talk about things that kind of stretch into uh, the comic book stories, get some stuff behind the scenes, um, which may happen. There also may be some spoilers. So just uh, you are warned. We're not going to get too spoilery, but we might get a little bit. Uh, But anyway, so Elisa, you were saying that you had seen Neil lately and that you have some behind the scenes uh, information about Sandman. I got a chance to see Neil and um, and was also able to hang out a bit with Rachel Pollock. And we were talking Sandman. And at one point, Neil mentioned uh, that when I guess there's more than one audition, but right away, everyone was loving what Tom Sturridge was bringing. It just he mm-hmm. naturally embodied Morpheus in a wonderful way. And then when they started filming, uh I guess he was doing something a little different. And mm-hmm. and Neil took him aside and said, just go back to your first instinct. You're not Batman. And <laughs> I, I loved this story because what I thought about it was how often our first instinct, our natural instinct is very right and natural. And then we can second guess ourselves. But also... Um, I I am unpopular among many of my friends because I have so many problems with almost all the Batman movies. And yes, I know <laughs> the Heath Ledger one was incredible in its way. Mm-hmm. But I I think Batman for me always works better on the page than on the screen. I know many people disagree. I think he mm-hmm. he doesn't come across uh, to me as I, I don't know. It's there's. I have a Batman problem. It's my problem. It's mine. <laughs> but I don't get that with with this Morpheus. I I what I feel is the moments when he feels self-consciously cool feel right. It feels like mm-hmm. it it feels both right for the immortal and relatable as a kind of 20 something response and it's a self-aware thing in this i think the way mm-hmm. maybe less so in i i've seen some movies with you know supposedly ancient vampires and um i don't know i feel like i'm babbling a bit here but there's i don't know any thoughts any thoughts about batman <laughs> morpheus and trusting your own instincts Yes, absolutely. First of all, I would like to say absolute hard cosign on the damage done by overthinking things, right? But can you imagine, you know, being an actor who gets this iconic role and going in on that first, like, I imagine that there's got to be a lot of you do the audition and you're like, well, here's my read on it. And then as you realize and you go through and you're like, oh, my God, I've just taken on this thing. And I think probably the same thing with Batman, which is also another, you know, DC uh, hero who is um, absolutely iconic. But what's really funny is that as you bring up uh, Batman, I have been doing some comic book reading over on my podcast in the gutter uh, where we are doing Grant Morrison's JLA and Batman is part of 
of that. Um, and it has been really interesting to me because Batman has always been, I think out of all the DC heroes, the one that I have loved the most, the one that I have resonated with the most. Um, and I'm finding that same experience now as I do the In the Gutter podcast. Yes, and I, I used to have um, slightly prurient uh, fantasies about Adam West. 1966 Batman. <laughs> I know it's probably very wrong. Yeah. Um, speaking about the gimp mask. Oh, or is that not a gimp no. mask? Is the I don't know. I'm I'm not I, entirely I sure what a gimp mask is. I I don't know, but I you know I feel like uh, I know, I, but I I'm gonna look it up after this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, please come back and tell us what you discover. Um, but yeah, like I, I absolutely love the performance. I think that um, that Tom Sturridge is managing to bring in that kind of youthful sense of inexperience, you know, while at the same time being immortal. And the thing is, when you think about it, right, like. Um, part of what, what you, what makes you grow the most are the things that are the hardest. And if you are an immortal being who runs your realm, like how, how much trauma has he really had to work through? How much growth has he really had to make? So on the scan, when you're talking about like the scale of immortality, he may well be, you know, thousands, millions of years old and yet still be 26 in his soul. But now that he's had this experience, I think we talked about this a little bit. When we we're talking about the comics. Now that he's had this experience of being captured, of being imprisoned, um, you know, of, of revenge, of having to go and rebuild his entire life, you know, um, like the tower narrative that we were talking about in an earlier episode. Um, you know, maybe he is beginning to grow in a way that the opportunity just hadn't been there for him. Uh, prior to this. So um, I think that Sturridge is doing an absolutely amazing job um, because there is kind of a a quietness about everything that's going on with with dream is is like rumbling sort of under this surface and i think that you can see that it's an understated performance and i think it's really really perfect um but getting back a little bit you were talking about the demons before and while i was watching this episode um i was just thinking about like the 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 ways in which we demonize particular people in culture because okay as i'm seeing a demon represented in pop culture like my first thought is, how do you walk around all day with like a spear sticking out of your back and your skin falling off and your face half eaten? Like, how does Mazikeen eat soup? You know, like that's got to be a challenge, right? Um, but when you look at demons as the people who are cast out of society and, and the thing that we do is we demonize, you know, these people, people who are demonized and ostracized, um, my read on everything just suddenly flipped from being a literal reading of how does Mazikeen eat soup to figurative one. Um, and it became just so much more interesting to me because if you think of hell as the place representing where people have been cast out to and banished, right? As is the story with Lucifer, right? Not where the evil go to be punished, right? Um, then you see everything through the eyes of, you know, quote unquote, like mainstream society, like uh, how, did, how do they eat the soup, right? And see... 
Instead, you know, that the eyes of the mainstream can't actually see what's really happening here, which is people in community, you know, which is the thing that our power structures try to reject for us, right? They they expect us, they promote this individualism, which comes with a certain isolation. Um, and when you think about everybody in hell being there in their community, doing their thing, being honorable, nothing left to lose, gives them all that power. You know, you have to ask the question, like, who is actually really in hell? You know, not to steal from another show, but like, you know, that maybe this is the bad place, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. I found that kind of an interesting turn that we're seeing hell through the eyes of somebody who um, who has not been cast out, who has not been ostracized. This is possibly a little facile, but in that big crowd <laughs> scene, I was thinking hell yeah. is being at a concert where there are mm -hmm. no big screens. And, you know, <laughs> unless they have special demon sight, all they would be able to see are teeny tiny Lucifer and teeny tiny Morpheus atop this huge cliff well, thing. Well, I thought that was I thought that was funny. I was like, well, there there must be jumbotrons, right? Because we do, you know, Corinzen goes out and makes this whole announcement to the throng, right? And is like, hey, we're you know we're about to see this big battle, and then Lucifer and Dream go inside. You know, and do this like it's it's very interesting, but also I think the rules of hell probably allow for everybody being able to watch all of this stuff happening, which is happening within this storytelling space. You know, I mean, oh, I anything's possible in hell. Anything is, but really, wouldn't it be hell if you know there's some amazing thing that's going on and you can only see the people tiny and there's probably some enormous demons horns blocking your view? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, it depends again, like this whole, you know, reversed read of hell, I'm becoming much, much more interested in that space and what it actually really is, you know. Um, but anyway, here we are, we're ready to talk about favorite parts. Elisa, what is your favorite part of a hope in hell? You know, I was torn. I was torn between mm -hmm. the moment when Lucifer registers that dream has scored that point about, you know, Without the hope of heaven, hell isn't hell. Right. When you're in mm -hmm. utter despair, it's just you you give yourself over to it. But I think mm -hmm. I have to go with the moment where Rosemary registers that this stray that she has picked up is a, a truly dangerous person. I don't love mm -hmm. it in the sense of it's nifty or I don't love it in the sense of it uh, it, it fulfills something for me, but it just felt like such great drama and great acting yeah. and i i just felt very connected with the whole i mean i felt connected with both the upstairs and downstairs but in the end mm -hmm. maybe because i'm middle-aged i thought wow you know the john d rosemary story really really connected it's really grounded. And the thing is, is that your favorite part doesn't have to be about delight. You know, it can be about the power of that moment. I think there's a lot of power in the drama. Um, for me, I have to say, like, hands down, I am hope. Like, damn. And the fact that he pulled that from Nada, you know, that it was Nada who saved him. Despite all, it was Nada whose insight saved him, right? Um, I, I loved it in the comics, but I think right here in the TV show, I loved it even more. Yeah, no, it's it's a damn good moment. Better than ending with fear. <laughs> Definitely. 
If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, we came here for the helm and we are not leaving without it. We'll be back next time with 24-7 episode 5 of Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Until then... There's one at the door and room for one more. Oh my God, I just have to say this. I know we're supposed to end, but there's like an old British horror show and there's the the coachman. Room for one more. Do you know it? (laughs) No.